Hello and welcome to Brain Food for General Council, where every month we look at the biggest issues your organisation faces with help and advice from experts, legal and otherwise, on how you can help your organisation to do better. My name's Matthew McGee and I'm a journalist here at Pinsent Masons. No organisation can thrive if its people are routinely not healthy. But not all health problems are visible or obvious. You could work with someone for years without knowing that they have poor mental health. So we'll investigate today what organisations can do to become better employers of people with mental health issues. And we'll look at just how essential that is for the organisation itself and for the well-being of its people. There is a business case for better mental health awareness and processes, but the overwhelming argument for improving how this is treated in the workplace is a human one. It's the rare person who never suffers any mental or emotional health problems, and a workplace that understands that is going to be a better place to work, as well as a more productive and more profitable one. If anyone had any doubts that people with depression and anxiety can be productive and effective under pressure, then Alistair Campbell will dispel them. Right-hand man and communications advisor to ex-UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, Alistair was at the heart of opposition then-government for more than 10 years, in the room through crises such as foot and mouth, fuel shortages, the attacks of September 11th 2001 and the Iraq War. He did it while dealing with depression and anxiety that he's laid bare in an unflinching account, Living Better, published last month. We'll hear from Alistair about what it's like to operate at that level while dealing with depression and about his tactics for coping. It's a story that will be familiar to Pinsent Mason's partner Sean Elson, who'll talk us through his own experiences of mental health and work. Philip Aitken of Barclays and Kate Dodd of Pinsent Masons will help us understand what practical action organisations can take and what differences that can make to an organisation's culture and ultimately its future direction and viability. But first to Alistair Campbell, whose book opens with the words On a dark Sunday night last winter, I almost killed myself and continues with unusual candour to detail his long experience with depression, which first came to a head in the 1980s. Even back then, he chose not to hide it, which was rare for anyone, never mind someone even slightly in the public eye, as he was a news editor of one national paper, then political editor of another. He told us about how his condition has affected him, but first I wanted to know if his openness itself undercut the shame that was and is all too common when dealing with mental health? Did it defang what others still considered an insult? I think I have benefited from being open, even though I got a lot of flack from a lot of people politically and media-wise. They were all pretty good in the main about me saying, you know, sometimes I got really bad depression and I once had a complete crack up and and, and you know had a drink problem and so forth. I, I never really felt any blowback at all. Now, that, as I say, is for me in a fairly fortunate position. I had employers who understood. I had friends and family who understood. I think it's it's harder maybe for people in an organisation where it's less understood. And I meet people all the time who, you know, some of whom end up in court where they feel that because of their openness about their mental health, that it's held against them, that it's held them against them in terms of promotion prospects, it's held against them in terms of bullying and so forth. So... It's not always the same, but I have always felt 
that being open has helped me as an individual and it's also helped how I feel about the world around me. I think that in my early days when I was a journalist, I dealt with my mood swings through alcohol in partly a kind of form of self-medication and also denial. And then I think when I stopped drinking in 1986 after I had a breakdown, I think I then developed a different form of denial through work. I think I became a workaholic. I probably always was a workaholic. And, I mean, I quote Tony Blair in the book as he, he once said to Vladimir Putin when Putin noticed that I wasn't drinking any of the vodkas that were being lined up with these toasts. And I was just sort of, this this queue of undrunk vodka was gathering by my plate. And Putin was sort of looking at this this little spectacle across from him. And Tony spotted him looking and said, oh, don't worry about him, he's a thingaholic. And it's a very good description. So I think I, I think I drowned it in drink and then I drowned it and then I, then I buried it in work. And it was only really after I left number 10 and in 2005, I was kind of, I, mean, I guess you'd call it, call it a form of self-harm. I was hard, I was physically hitting myself. And um, I thought, oh my, you know, this has gone on too long. You've really got to get help. Alistair writes about the tactics he's developed to cope with his illness, one of which is a scale of one to 10, where he gives a score to how he's feeling each day. He says the best one is where he thinks of himself as a jam jar as recommended by one expert. So the jam jar was a thing that I came across in Canada with a woman who I actually went to see. to, disturb, to She's a genetics expert. And it was to talk to her about whether there was a genetic element. And she basically said that, look, you look at your life as a jam jar. At the bottom of the jam jar is a sediment, and that's your genes. Nothing you can do about that. And then your life fills up with experiences that are good or bad and they mix in. Most of it goes in and it goes out because we don't remember everything and things. some things aren't important. And But then what happens is as you go through life, if your jam jar becomes unmanageable and there's too much going on in there that you're not managing properly, it explodes. And she says, and that's illness. That, that can be any sort of psychological illness, but that's how to think of it. And she said, instead of spending all our lives as we do, sort of ruminating about, what's already in the jam jar, stuff that we can't undo. She said, try to think of it as what can we do to grow and extend the jam jar so that we can pour more life into it. And when she was talking to me, I sort of half got what she was on about, but it was a few days later, I I woke up in the middle of the night and I drew my own jam jar. So mine started with FFF, which is Fiona Family Friends, if you get those key relationships right. And then I've always, as I say, been a bit of a workaholic, so... I put work into two bits. I called it meaningful activity paid and meaningful activity unpaid. And then I was into my fundamentals. That was sleep, diet, and exercise. And then you're into the things that really, really matter to you, the things that, you know, are very, very personal. So for me, Burnley Football Club, bagpipes, scenery, speaking French and German, reading in French and German, the music that I like the, 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 to listen to, the books that I like to read. And then I think I'm into the whole sort of curiosity, creativity thing. You know, the idea that try and learn something every day that you didn't learn the day before. And what was interesting about it when I was doing it, it was I was off the page before I even got to medication, which I still take and it's still part of my jam jar. But if you'd have said to me the day before I met the woman, how do you stay okay with your depression? I'd have said, oh, well, I take medication every day. But now it's given me a different way of thinking about it. Mental health is still pretty poorly understood by those without direct experience of it. 
Many societies have got past the stage where it can be openly mocked without consequence, but not quite to the stage where we routinely change the way we work and operate to accommodate it. This is why personal testimonies are so important to help people understand the situation and to reinforce the message that this is something to be discussed, not hidden away. We know we can't send someone with a broken leg out to deliver the post, but we're usually much less clear what we can and can't ask someone to do if they have depression or anxiety. Talking about it helps us all. Sean Elson of Pinsent Masons told me about his experiences. People who haven't maybe had much experience of mental health issues might look at somebody who outwardly is, you know, wealthy, successful with, you know, uh, you know, a, a family um, and mat- lots of material possessions and say, well, how, what on earth could they possibly have to be depressed with? Um, and then somebody who is in, you know, terrible circumstances might be one of the most, you know, happy-go-lucky people you, you could possibly meet. It tends to manifest it, it itself in, in a number of ways, um, very low mood, um, irritability, um, etc. So the kind of things that you can have just, frankly, through being alive, you know, we all experience these low periods and, and, and uh, times of difficulty. Um, the problem that has occurred for me on a couple of occasions has been um, the fact that it's quite insidious. So you you start to feel lower and lower, and eventually it becomes that that's that's how you feel, that's how you are, it's you, um, rather than recognising that actually this is this is not how it should be, and this shouldn't be a permanent state of affairs. The reaction of many people when they learn about Alistair Campbell's experiences from the book or his many radio and television programmes about his depression, or his campaigning on mental health issues, is probably incredulity that he could more or less help to run a country while dealing with sometimes severe episodes of mental ill health. But he says that having such an all-consuming job actually made it easier to deal with in some ways, and that the problems became more acute when work at that level of intensity stopped. I could because I had a desire to do what I was doing. I had even... Even with lower energy, I still had quite a lot of energy. And then what would happen, and I'm afraid this is where families take the brunt of it, I'd come home, I'd be completely exhausted, and I'd just sort of crash. So I think it was a, I think work was, a, was, a, was actually part of the management of it in a funny sort of way. I think people who are in very busy, high-pressure, high-stress jobs, I think, that's a, I think it's that feeling of where you're meant to enjoy something. Um, you know, it's, it's why, for example, I think that, from my experience, a lot of people find Christmas and New Year really, really stressful. If your mind and your body is still kind of trapped in a very, very high-pressure work zone, and then suddenly you're meant to be chilling out at a rented home or on a beach or on a bike ride or something, but your mind is still elsewhere, added to which, certainly in my case, when I was, you know, really, really busy, was that the phone never stopped anyway and there was always stuff to do. It just kind of seems to add to that sense of I'm not in the right place, not feeling that you're in the right place. That's when I feel my depressions are starting to kind of take a really bad hold of me. And and often that does start when I'm taking myself out of the mode, the zone that I'm most used to and into a different one. Alistair Campbell has dealt with pressure, the like of which few of us can imagine. 
Yet he said in the past that in all his time at the heart of the UK government, only five events truly counted as a crisis. So how did he cope in those moments? If I remember rightly, what I, what I would have said the five crises were, that would have been Kosovo, foot and mouth, fuel protests, 9-11 and Iraq, I would say. I would say for them, the only one that did impinge, you know, really directly on my mental health was Iraq. And that was because of the particular circumstances I found myself in with real difficulties at home because Fiona had had enough of the job and was also against the policy and that just added to kind of difficulties. And added to which I then, trying to get out, then subsequently became the kind of focus of so much of the, you talk about a target on the back, that was when I really, I did have the target on my back in um, in terms of the media and politics and so forth. So apart from that, no, in fact, I would I would say, and this is something I think you've got to be a bit careful of in uh, in any big organisation where there is a potential to have a crisis, is that they they can be kind of a bit of addictive. Once you once you're getting used to doing a job like that, where it is quite high level and it is quite stressful and it is a lot of travel and a lot of time and a lot of difficult challenges and problems, which others might see as crisis, but if providing you handle them properly, they're not. And that can become a bit kind of dull and a bit mundane. And then there's a danger that actually what you live for is the, you know, oh, my God, this is meltdown. Because then that plays to the idea that we can sort this, we can fix this. But I think in relation to my mental health, no, I I think apart from those very personal circumstances in Iraq, I didn't feel that the crisis itself was adding to any additional problem. Sean Elson wonders if there's a more intricate relationship at work here, whether all-consuming work, such as being a lawyer, actually attracts people who are more at risk from mental health conditions. Um, In certain types of professions, you know, there there may be a a certain type of people that are attracted to those uh, professions, uh, high-achieving, high-functioning, but maybe with um, elements of uh, f- needing to feel a sense of control um, or always wanting to be better or uh, perfectionism. Those things, I think, are very relevant uh, factors for people in professional services. One area is, is also this, this sense of competition as well, the extent to which it may or may not be healthy to be in a constant s- state of feeling that you're in competition with your peers, whether it's for, uh, you know, bonus or promotion or you know the next big project and the extent to which that is particularly healthy uh, and may contribute to people's issues um you know, so i very much a proponent of wanting to work in a collegiate um environment where we're all working towards the same goals rather than uh, a kind of devil take the hindmost type um, scenario um, and where you know, people are constantly striving for fear of you know what the consequences are if you're seen as you know quotes underperforming close quotes. So while Alistair Campbell could work effectively the cost was in the end enormous and while neither Alistair nor Sean would go so far as to say that one thing caused the other it's uncontroversial to say that work and its stresses and pressures is a factor in mental health for all of us. Philip Aitken 
recognises this. He is a managing director in the legal function at Barclays Bank and he's helped put together the Mindful Business Charter to try and address some of the working conditions that can lead to ill health. It came out of a conversation with Pinsent Mason's senior partner Richard Foley and a shared recognition that some of the stresses of work were productive and some were most definitely not. We were talking about the fact that the day job, the actual job, the lawyering that we do is in most cases reasonably straightforward. But what makes the job harder are the pressures that we put on each other, the demands that we put on each other within our own organisations, but also the demands that we put on each other in terms of client and service provider. So in my in my example, that is bank and law firm or in-house function and law firm. And how it, it seems that an element of humanity has come out of that relationship as we each sit behind our computer screens. It's too easy to casually set a deadline and unintentionally and perhaps inadvertently counsel someone's weekend plans or their plans to see family or their plans to care for their children or perhaps some elderly relatives. And that we needed to think of a way to put the humanity back into those relationships, particularly at a time where many in-house functions are seeing their law firms as an extension of their function as colleagues. And it was in that conversation we said, you know, isn't it, isn't it just the case of putting together sort of 10 basic principles? This is how we're going to interact with one another, where we, where we respect each other. And also we recognise that each of us have lies outside of the workplace and one of my biggest frustrations about the workplace is that everyone is so busy pretending they have no other commitments that work is the most important thing and whilst work is always important it is not always the most urgent thing in our lives and actually it's time that we talk about that more the fact that there is a need to balance um commitments outside of the workplace with those important commitments inside the workplace and that if we all work together we can make that happen much more effectively than we have done before i am seeing instances where law firms are saying in res- in, res- in response to a deadline we can get you that document on monday morning but that will involve um two of my associates working the weekend that's absolutely fine if this matter is at the stage that it requires that level of urgency Alternatively, we can get it to you by close of business on Tuesday. Inevitably, the response from um, from our side as a client has been, no, there's there's no need for anyone to work the weekend on this. Close of business on Tuesday is, is absolutely fine. Much of the work that we do, if not all of it, is important, but a minority of it is urgent. And I think before the Mindful Business Charter, people were failing to distinguish the urgent from the important. I think that is critical. Whichever way you look at it, legally, ethically, commercially, on the basis just of humanity, employers have a duty to treat their workers in a way that doesn't damage their health. Work still needs to be done to ensure that this is applied to mental as well as to physical health. So if you assume that one of your main assets are your people, how do you make sure that that asset is performing and functioning as well as it possibly can. To my mind, the mental well-being of those people is critical and core to that. The workplace has had for you know over a hundred years now a very robust set of health and safety 
regulation, which was predicated on the physical well-being of colleagues in a work environment. And that had its genesis in a period of time in the Industrial Revolution when people were being physically injured in the workplace. And I think if we now look at the digital revolution that we're going through, um, people are, I think, being injured in the workplace, but in a way that we can't see in, in a mental capacity. People have the ability to work 24-7. They have the ability to send emails at whatever time of the day. It is easy for people never to switch off. And I think employers should start asking themselves to what extent are they exposing their people, the main asset of that organization, to the risk of injury in the workplace as a result. And if you assume there is a reasonable risk of that injury, then what is it that organizations are doing in order to mitigate the risk of harm to their colleagues when they when they step into the workplace, whether that is virtually um, or physically? So that is the question. What can companies do about this? It's an area where many managers feel uncomfortable not having direct experience of the issue or the consequences of a team member having mental ill health. Diversity and inclusion consultant Kate Dodd of Pinsent Masons says that identifying problems is crucial, but that to do that, you need to create a culture where mental health is talked about. This has always been a problem for employers is that mental health is often something that hasn't been spoken about. And often the first time an employer finds out about somebody having a mental health condition is when there is some sort of issue or a breakdown uh, or an absence from work. Um, And then it becomes a question of should the employer have known? You know, would a reasonable employer have known that that person was um, susceptible or was suffering? From a kind of an organisational level, um, the types of things that a GC should be thinking about are, do we talk about mental health? Is mental health, do I feel comfortable about putting the words mental health into an email? You know, or do I think, oh, I better call it well-being rather than mental health? Because those are the kind of flags that often demonstrate that it's still a real taboo subject within a business. And another really good flag is, do senior people talk about their own lived experiences of mental health in my organisation? And for a GC, that's a very good question to ask themselves, because if the answer is no, then it's likely that those conversations, if they're happening, will be happening behind closed doors. And of course, what we know is that the more stigma that exists within an organisation, the less likely there are to be having these conversations day to day and to be able to spot, to help, to assist and, of course, to create that kind of much more human working environment. The legal obligations that an employer has um, around duty of care, etc., disability, discrimination, the, the far more important aspects in some ways is how an employee is being treated, whether they feel they're being treated fairly or unfairly, because that's what will make an employee stay with the business. And it's also what will make an employer's brand either be a, a positive brand or be quite a toxic brand that people do not want to work for. There's a commercial as well as a human imperative here, says Philip. You will be a better business if you take this seriously. I don't think an organisation can perform uh, as well as it can unless its people are healthy, are working in a sustainable way um, and are not being subject to pressures which are unreasonable in the workplace, but an employer has to look at what its assets are. 
And one of its most important assets are its people and the health and well-being of those people are going to directly impact how well that organization is going to perform. Attracting, retaining, developing people is, is expensive and it is hard work to find the best people. If you're unable to persuade talent that your organization is the one where someone will thrive in a sustainable way, then it is my belief that it will become harder to attract talent to your organization. Let's assume for the moment that you do manage to attract that talent to your organization, but the ecosystem within which that talent is required to work is such that they can only bear it for a small number of years before burnout, then that person is going to leave. And then you need to, to attract and recruit someone to replace that person. I see that the old ways of working are fundamentally inefficient and therefore I see the commercial imperative of getting that right as being key to an organization's success. Kate described this as a culture change and, and that frightens people because culture is notoriously impervious to change. But she says don't believe the hype. It'll take time, years probably, but it is possible. We just need, as in many other aspects of this, not to treat mental health as different to other parts of working life. Just look at it like any other type of change. I think businesses sometimes get very caught up with this idea about culture change and say, well, it's impossible to change a culture. And of course it isn't. Um, and if culture change is, is approached with the same type of um, organisation and framework as any other type of change within a business, then that is a really good place to start. Um, and we have looked at this, uh, you know, in exactly the same way as we would look at any other type of change. We've got together a group of people who are responsible for dealing with it. We have made sure that we have got the right people in the right places, um, that it is somebody's day job. I think sometimes the problem with culture change is that people think it's it, it's quite a difficult thing to measure and therefore people should be doing it off the side of their desks. You know, they might see it as not being caught to strategy, for example. An important aspect of culture change is making sure that that, that it's not dismissed as being something that will take too long because culture change does take years. So I think it's a case of making sure that there is an acknowledgement that this is going to take time, that maybe there is a three to five year plan, that people approach it with that that aspect in mind so that over the course of three years or five years or however long it takes, they can see that they are moving in the right direction. Thanks for joining us for the latest Brain Food for General Council podcast. Remember, you can keep up to date with hour-by-hour coverage of business law news by the Outlaw Reporting team at pincentmasons.com. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Brain Food for General Council was produced and presented by Matthew McGee for Pincent Masons, the international professional services firm with law at its core.